0: Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God, our Father, and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to which we can all say, Amen. Our text is from 1 Kings. But Naaman became angry and stalked away. I thought he would certainly come out to meet me, he said. I expected him to wave his hand over the leprosy and call on the name of the Lord his God and heal me. Aren't the rivers of Damascus, the Abana, and the Far-Far, far better than any of the rivers of Israel? Why shouldn't I wash in them and be healed? So Naaman turned and went away in a rage. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Now, I think we live in a time of really close to delusional expectations. We have a new president... And uh, no matter what you think of the new president, I think he has been saddled with expectations of solving all the world's problems. You know, if, if G.W. Bush couldn't solve them, this guy will solve everything. I think that's an unrealistic expectation. Coming to seminary, you may have had some unrealistic expectations as well, both as students and teachers also spouses and family members and things like this. Coming to seminary was probably thought by you to be an extremely pious and wonderful experience with no downside and no down days. And when you got here, I'm sure there were some of those other things as well. And of course, we live in the greatest country in the world, or at least we think so. And we have expectations of greatness about our country and our American way that will never fade nor perish into all eternity. However, this is not most certainly true. All the other great empires of the world always thought that they would never fade or perish either. And that's one of the big problems with great empires, is they don't think they're going to fade or perish until they're gone. And then they have faded and perished. Then there are realistic expectations like Naaman had, and Naaman's kind of a realist about things if you think about it. I kind of like Naaman. You know, he's the commander of the army, and uh, he knows he has leprosy, and his leprosy is a lousy condition, and it's not till this little Israelite girl comes along that Naaman has this sort of itch to scratch his leprosy, so to speak. He wants to take his leprosy and heal it all of a sudden, And so he goes to his king and says, do I have permission to go to this other king? But prior to that, Naaman's expectations were probably kind of low. He had probably been to see the various uh, Shylocks, uh, physicians, people who didn't have anything to do with anything except snake oil and whatever they were doing. And there had been no cure. And so he did not expect great things. He probably figured on living his life out in some misery. But this little girl comes along and says this one thing. This is one of the greatest marketing things ever. If only my master would see the prophet in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. And the really, really interesting thing is that Naaman believes her. He goes and gets 150 pounds of gold. And he gets 750 pounds of silver. And 10 changes of fine clothes, which don't count much against all that gold and silver. Face it, you could go hit a Nordstrom's if you wanted to with that much gold and silver. But the point is he goes and gets the clothes and the gold and the silver because if you're going to get a prophet to do something big like take care of leprosy, you have to pay him well. Plus he didn't know how many people he would have to grease along the way, how many bribes there would be on the way to getting this famous prophet to do this thing. Maybe he'd have to pay off the king and some of his ministers and other things like this. I really doubt things have changed that much in the Middle East. Or in our country, for that matter. So he goes to the king of Israel, and the king of Israel has expectations as well. He expects a plot, a scheme from the king of Aram to take over his kingdom. See how the man schemes against me with his reasonable request heal my servant. It doesn't help that the king had not been consulting Elisha, which might have given him some hope. But Elisha, however, has no illusions. He has the word of God. He's God's man. He has been affirmed by miracles and wonders as a prophet of the word. I mean, who else had made axe heads float? And once again... Naaman's expectations are not met. Naaman, the poor guy, comes with all his horses and chariots and expects that he will have a nice show. You know, prophets, in order to dress up what they were doing, at least false prophets, had to put on a show. And they would come out and do some singing, some dancing, see all the prophets of Baal. You know, they cut themselves and bled all over the place. And that's what they did for a while. When they were feeling particularly bled out, then, you know, of course, Elijah starts mocking. Maybe he's hard of hearing. Maybe he can't hear you. Maybe he's busy. And there's another case of a no-nonsense prophet. He gets a bunch of water, pours it on the thing, and prays the Lord is God, and down comes the fire. You see, Naaman expected this, but you know what? He doesn't even get to meet the guy. He sends his servant. He does not even get to meet the man. He came with all this gold and silver, with all these chariots and horses, with all this importance, all this pomp. Even brought him a nice wardrobe. And he doesn't even get to meet him. You know, this kind of brings to my mind baptism. Although I can't say this for sure, but it's interesting. Where the word of God can come first, but you really don't get to be part of the family until you've already washed. Once again, it's the servants who convince Naaman. Can you imagine the servants? Naaman has flown off in a rage. And the servants come and say, "Uh, Master, Uh, Master, um, if he had asked you to climb that big mountain over there or something like that in your full armor, wouldn't you have done it? If he had asked you to swim the breadth of the Nile, wouldn't you have done it? dodging crocodiles and killing them all the way. He just wants you to wash in the river, the Jordan River, seven times. And this takes a little bit of swallowing of pride because, you know, Naaman has really judged the Jordan River. It's, it's kind of like, uh, you know, why would, I, why would I wash in that sewer when there's fresh water in Damascus? You know, why would I go into this muddy stream when there's blue water in Damascus? That kind of thing. And now, having been cleansed because he simply went and did what he was told and had faith in the word to the degree that he believed it, And just did what he was told. That's not a whole lot of faith, but he did it. Now he wants to make his offering. And Elisha refuses it. You see, it's not a time to reinforce Naaman's works righteousness. And this is where Gehazi gets it so tragically wrong in the next pericope. Gehazi says, oh, he got off too easy. Hey, we got some people in town. Could you give us a little money and some changes of clothes? Here's two changes of clothes. Here's some money. And of course, Elisha says, "Uh, was I not there when you got down off your horse? Did I not hear what you said? Naaman's leprosy will stick with you and your family forever. Because, you see, what Gehazi had done was try to undo the belief that it was God and his word, that it was God and his doing for Naaman that saved him. Gehazi's work was undoing all the grace and faith there was. Elisha does not play into this system of works. Naaman must be trained in faith. Elisha replies, As 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 surely as the Lord lives whom I serve, I will not accept any gifts. And though Naaman urges him to take the gifts, he refuses. And the training takes root. And now the man does not just want to wash in the river, but wants to worship on the soil of the man of God. The soil of that place. Can I please... Take two donkey loads of the soil of this land. I am going to spread it out in my own land so I may always worship in Israel so I may be reminded. But only excuse me this. I must go up to the temple of Rimen once a year with my master. Excuse me when I bow down. And you know, it's kind of like, uh, I, you feel like Elisha is kind of a good Lutheran here. Well, you can do a little left-hand kingdom bowing down. It's not going to hurt. Your heart's not in it. That's it. I don't know, that's an interesting concept. Elisha is a Lutheran, I don't think so. His reply is, go in peace. Well, here's the point for us. This is all very interesting, but here's the point for us. Does Christ meet our expectations? Does God meet our expectations? And when he doesn't, what do we do? Do we... Obey and believe? Or do we try to negotiate? Do we try to create the God we want for the occasion? Do we say, well, theologically, God can't do that? Well, you know, that would make God a little Calvinist for me. Do we trust Him? Do others in our lives have to help us like the servants did along the way? Struggling to help us to believe when we don't want to? Do they have to fear our wrath? Jesus, one greater than Elisha, has come to us. We, with the Namans of our sinful nature, bring our feeble offerings to God and he leaves us waiting until we come open and empty. We come open and empty-handed in faith, doing the simple things he has asked of us. Washing and being cleansed, eating and drinking body and blood, trusting that our Lord and Savior is at the cross for us. He appears to be failing us there, but is in fact winning the world to himself and paying for the sins of all nations. And the risen Christ raises us up to be with him through water and the word. He keeps us faithful and true and upholds us by this word of promise. He stoops to serve us and be with us in Holy Communion. He empowers us by his Holy Spirit to live Christian lives and he gives us strength to die Christian deaths. So it's not according to our experiences or our expectations that God saves. It is rather through the nonsense of Christian preaching of the cross that God wins over those he would save and bring to the kingdom. For the foolishness of God is stronger than men's wisdom. So I guess we ought to ask the question, what is our Jordan River? What do we hold in contempt that God, in fact, would have us use for his kingdom? What is it in our lives that we have about God that we don't really appreciate and that God gives us as a thing to work on anyway. So if things around here at the seminary or in our nation do not meet with our expectations or approval, maybe it's time to consider the scriptures. Seminaries are temporary states for education of servants of the Lord. Great nations rise and fall, presidents come and go, but the eternal kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ Our Jordan River will never perish or die, and we too will be part of it fully when we die in true faith. Amen.